Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm your host, Faisal Yafai. I'm joined today by Alex Skolnick, lead guitarist for the influential thrash metal band Testament. He's a jazz musician, photographer, as well as what we're going to talk about today, sometimes social and political commentator. I'm also joined by Idris Ahmed, a senior editor here at New Lines, as well as a contributing editor at the LA Review of Books and director of the International Journalism Programme at the University of Stirling. Alex, Idris, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. We're here to discuss an essay that Alex wrote for the magazine, defending his right as an artist to speak out on political issues. The essay was called Shut Up and Play Your Guitar. The essay is worth reading in its entirety, but the central theme can be summed up in this paragraph. You write, true artistry includes challenging your fans on occasion. Some will come along and discover new ways of seeing. Others will prefer the comfort of their prejudices, hurl insults, and hit unfollow. At a time when attention has become a prized commodity, the fear of losing one's audience is understandable. But we forget that it was fearless acts of imagination that built that audience in the first place. If there are risks to political activism, there are also gratifications to offset them. Let's start there. Alex, what, in your opinion, are the gratifications of political activism? Well, I think, uh, you know, making a, a statement and just being truthful, it's a very, it, it's a core part of uh, being a creative person and earning your living as an artist. You know, the, uh, the more uh, visible examples of sort of uh, politics and music you know, going back to the 60s and 70s, you think Bob Dylan, Crosby, Stills and Nash, Ohio, um, you know, and so like too many examples to name. I name a bunch in, in the essay, but the, right. this was a common thing and it became a part, it was part of how they built their careers. Um, and even artists who di didn't have songs that were that necessarily political of uh, yeah, we're we're certainly outspoken about a lot of issues. Even you know, the, the Beatles really went beyond being a pop band once they started to to speak about the war and um, having having more of a social um, so more social awareness. So it's yeah. it's just been very strange in recent times that that type of connection between uh, awareness, social awareness, and music is considered the exception rather than the rule. And there's just a, a tremendous fan backlash that m many of us uh, get when we, we even, you know, set foot in that direction, not even coming close. It's, it's as if um, during the days of Crosby, Stills and Nash, a bunch of Nixon fans, you know, threatened to not listen to the band anymore, you know, which wasn't the case. There was like a clear distinction between the counterculture and the so-called establishment. And now it's, the that, lines yeah. aren't so clear. You think that is that distinction has, has faded somewhat? Oh yeah, completely, completely. Um, now there's this expectation that if you are in the public eye as a as a musician, you're not supposed to speak about these things. You're supposed to sort of toe the party line and just just focus on on music. Um, of course, the people who are most offended seem to be very um, outspoken themselves. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, if I get uh, one of these 
negative comments. You know, this this being the era of social media, you can see who's commenting, and yeah. you can check their Facebook page, and you find yeah. that wow, the very same people that are telling me to be so outspoken, that their page is filled with uh, you know memes uh, that are certainly political, just from the opposite side of the spectrum. You you do get attacked for it. This is something you say in the piece that the title of the essay "Shut Up and Play Your Guitar" actually comes from an LP by Frank Zappa, and yeah. you say in the piece that that phrase has now been appropriated by your right wing critics. Oh yeah, it comes up if you look at any thread in a comment section. Whenever there is a a piece, you know, Alex Skolnick says this about gun controller. Alex Skolnick says this about vaccines. So I mean, as we speak, you know, we're within a week of several of these stories. This has happened. <laughs> Even well, the piece, you know, itself for New Lines was covered in a, in a few articles. But mm-hmm. since then, um, I made a comment about you know, su- supporting science and vaccinations, and that and vaccinations at concerts. And while I didn't come out and say. I support vaccine passports. You know that that was the clickbait headline. You know, Skolnick right. supports vaccine passports. And then, in in that thread, of course, you know, there's various comments. Well, I was a fan, you know, um, and yeah, several indeed said, "Shut up and play your guitar," and which is you, most I mean, ironic given the source. This is something that I want to explore a little bit with you because you know. Sure you have quite a large following and you admit in the essay that some people will click on follow. They might stop listening to your music. Does that not bother you in some way? Uh, it, I, I, you know, it, it gave me pause at one point uh, when it first started happening because, you mm. know, um, there is the, uh, there's a, another phrase by, um, an athlete, great one of our greatest athletes, Michael Jordan, who once said, uh, "You know, Republicans buy sneakers too." And yeah, well, it, yeah. he's, I think he said that to turn down an invitation to speak at a rally for a Democratic candidate, something like that. Uh, so at first, you know, I thought of that. I thought, you know, well, I have some fans that I I don't understand how anybody could be behind uh, the whole, you know, behind Trumpism as, as much, as much as <laughs> I could talk about, about Trump, let's talk about Trumpism. Um, I don't get that, but you know, do I really want to drive them away? And then I just thought, well, I don't want to play this game and just have to, you know, suck it up and, and smile and sort of tailor my social media presence to, to make them happy. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it actually felt like a, a relief to just say, you know what? <laughs> no, I'm, this is completely, uh, because I, I think it's beyond politics because I'm not attacking, um, you know, traditional conservative politics. It would be very different if this was the eighties or, you know, even the nineties. And I was talking about, you know, um, people who believe in lower corporate tax rates and example, less yeah. government. Yeah. It's not, yeah, it's like not that at all. Yeah. Now mm-hmm. it's just, it's gotten so um, disingenuous 
and the whole you know, belief in the uh, right-wing um, news echo chamber and you know the these headlines which you know the current current headlines on on Fox you know right, like right after for one, just one example Biden just uh, gave a press conference and one of the uh, banner headlines on Fox was you know Biden gives press conference full of lies you know <laughs> and and you know these are the same people when you know when Trump's was giving his public appearance they were praising it falling over so it's so disingenuous and these same people that are criticizing me and threatening to not listen to my music and follow well they're, they're buying into that and they're quoting that and i i can't support that and i can't well, that, pretend yeah. to support that well that's one of the aspects i think of the essay that's quite intriguing that it does seem quite personal in a way like you seem to believe that there's an obligation on the part of the artist not to choose silence at a moment mm-hmm. of political upheaval. Yeah, that's uh, that's exactly right. Because I think it, it's beyond any one issue. I think it's it really has so much to do with you know just honesty and the fact that you're seeing a lot of former Republicans that feel ex- exactly the same way I do. You know, the, um, mm-hmm. there, there's no shortage of um, you know, whole organizations of people that, that have worked for years for candidates that I certainly disagree with, but, you know, being more of a center-left person myself. But, you know, when you have these same campaign managers, you know, forming organizations to defeat the current uh, version of their party, yeah, some, something's definitely wrong. Mm. I want to bring Idris in at the moment because, uh-huh. Idris, you've been very vocal about artists speaking up you know, at a particular political moment. But not everyone who speaks up is going to agree with your politics. So let's think about someone like Kanye West, who's used his enormous platform and following, and he used it to support Donald Trump. Would it not be better, Idris, to say to someone like that, Look, you focus on your music and leave politics to the politicians. Um, yeah, that's that's um, that's true. But I think um, my position has always been that uh, artists, to begin with, are first humans, then citizens, and uh, there is a kind of a, a obligation as a human and as citizen to be involved in what's happening in the society around us. And um, um, the reason why. When people always give examples, like, you know, I think probably Kanye West is a good example, and then also Roger Waters and people like that. Um, people give examples like that, but pro- the issue is that also in the world of political commentary, like people who are established political commentators, I mean, do we trust them always to have the right opinion? Because there's a whole range there too. There are people who have completely, I mean, look at the, any Fox News um you know, the experts or commentators, would you ever trust them? So I trust them about as little as I trust uh, Kanye West. And, but at the same time, there are people who have good political judgment who are, you know, to begin with, once again, uh, that the artistry is also a reflection sometimes of that, the, the person. So if they have that audience and if they can do something positive with it, so I'm always going to try to, uh, you know, to, to ask them, 
to leverage that uh, support they have. And I think in, in recent years, there have been some really great examples. I think you know, Taylor Swift was uh, Taylor yes. Swift was an amazing thing that, you know, she encouraged all her followers to register to vote, young people who are mostly otherwise politically apathetic. So I thought that, that was like a, a real good use of this massive audience that she she has. And I think, think Reese, wouldn't you say that, for example, Taylor Swift hmm. is doing a good thing because you agree with her politics? From from the perspective of artists being involved, someone like Kanye West is doing something positive because he's using his following in the service of his political views. Yeah, but that's kind of uh, in the service of his political ambitions. And the views are not of public interest. I'm talking about like a general public interest. I mean, in the case of Taylor Swift, she didn't say who to vote for. She said, go and register to vote. So I think that that's a kind of a, you know, important thing because we, a lot of our elections have been decided in ways which we don't like because there's a whole demographic that has been missing. You know, younger people have been politically apathetic. So if somebody's encouraging them to get involved in the issues that affect all of us, so I think that um, that's a positive thing because that's also the demographic that tends to be more conscious of things like climate change and that's a bit more sympathetic to immigrants and tends to be more kind of uh, enlightened on uh, race issues. So I think that um, anybody, if anybody's encouraging them to get more involved, you know, you don't have to dictate to them that, you know, take this position or that position. But even encouraging that demographic to get involved, I think, is a very, very positive thing. And um, it's basically asking them to take on their burden as citizens of their, you know, whichever society they are, they are a part of. Right. And, mm -hmm. and basically what I was going to, I mean, my, you know, basic premise is that people, even who are political pundits, they get things wrong. And certainly, if we are going to ask artists with big followings to weigh in on issues, um, we may get some who have completely, whose politics is completely wrong. But even sometimes we can involve them in, um, I mean, there have been cases of people you don't agree with, but they are very committed to some um some issue on which you do have an agreement. I mean, you know, some, some, some person may be um, otherwise very distant from your worldview, but they may be very committed to climate change. They, they may, I mean, and then sometimes people that I didn't even know were politically involved. Um, like, I'll give you one example of these contradictions within a single person. <clears throat> you know, in, the, um, in the Game of Thrones series, there was this Irish actor who used to play that, that uh, for, I'm forgetting his designation, but the Onion Lord, the, the pirate. And um, so he's an Irish actor, seems like a very decent guy. And um, he did a lot of very nice things, very moving things about refugees. And um, then at the same time, I think because of his other milieu, that he started also promoting a lot of very idiotic conspiracy theories about the conflict in Syria. So in that case, you know, I appreciate the fact that he actually created practical, he did practical things to assist some refugees in one place, while at the same time, you know, the, his, his views in other respects have been damaging, but I feel like, you know, he's, there's no absence of good faith there, that he may be wrong on something, but at least he has good faith, and that means that he's still reachable. And mm. I that's the distinction between the ideologues 
the ones who are set in their, their worldviews, and people who are amenable to, who have good faith, but they may be misguided. Right. Alex, exactly. let me bring you in on this, because you mm-hmm. you talk real politics. I mean, you, you mm-hmm. don't in any way hide your political views. I mean, you are, I want to tell those people who haven't had a chance to listen to your Trump song. I just want to read a couple <laughs> of lyrics from the song. This was a, a song that you released before the US election last year, where you didn't yeah. say to people, go out and vote, as Idris was saying about Taylor Swift. And you didn't even say, go out and vote, vote out uh, Trump, but vote for whoever you like. You said, here's the lyrics. Um, I won't try to, <laughs> I won't try to rap it. I'll just read it. Okay. So one of the lines. Ahead, runs... <laughs> oh no. <laughs> um, one of the lines runs, abomination, an epic fail, just like Bannon and Flynn, he belongs in jail, Trump sucks. Now, knowing that tens of millions of people voted for Trump before and would vote for him subsequently, why go out of your way to say these things in such forceful language? It's not, it seems like it isn't enough to make your views known in general terms. You want to make them known in very specific terms. Well, uh, that the line you're quoting actually follows some earlier lines, which I think, um, you know, states the case why Trump sucks. Right before the, that line is a line, um, you know, no regulations for clean air and water. He got to office and installed his own daughter. She serves no purpose except for appearance, initially denied a security clearance. <laughs> and as I'm d- doing this, I'm holding up an iPad with um, yeah, a Washington Post article about mm-hmm. this. Yeah. And the fact that she was denied a security Clarence. Uh, and then the next line, her husband, Jared, is even worse yet. Shady ties analyzed as a security threat. <laughs> um, this is true. So the whole. It's true. But Alex, these are these are partisan political points. You're not merely that, saying yeah. be involved as a citizen. You're saying these that's, are the views. Yeah, that's true. I, I, so I, I think. um we can differentiate between uh, statements that are political points that are, are facts and others that are clearly opinions. So okay. say the, the idea that um, too many refugees have been led into the United States, for example, that's an opinion. And maybe you can find some t- statistics. I will say, you know, no, that's not the, I will find statistics to back it up. Regardless, that would be an opinion. But everything I point out in that song <laughs> actually happened. So like, yeah, people could say to me, how, you know, how dare you say this? You know, how, how, how dare you tell us what the vote, you know, how dare you, you know, flick your views on, on the fans. But nobody could say that, you know, anything I said isn't true. Now they, you know, the people I'm talking about do that. They call it fake news, right? right? Which which used to mean uh, actual fake news, you know, done, you know, for the purpose of um, mis mis disinformation. But um, you know that that's a big part of it. So I'm I'm just that's the way, I, and that's the way I look at it. I am just expressing truth. And yes, I do have an opinion about it, but it, my opinion also 
uh, leads to the conclusion, like how how could anybody support this? How could anybody um, vote for this this person just based on the activity, not even the the political positions? Do you think I, that? I can interject just yeah uh, yeah. So I, I, what I was going to say is that. Um, uh, you know, we, we speak about political partisanship and uh, we, I think, conflated with political tribalism because uh, some people have uh, affiliation with parties and uh, it's uh, kind of, uh, you know, it's an affiliation, my party, right or wrong kind of uh, uh, position. Yeah. But there is also many people who do not. In fact, it's increasingly the case that people are not really um they don't have the attachment to parties the way we used to. I remember um, before, shortly before his death, the um, foreign secretary, uh, the UK foreign secretary, Robin Cook, I had asked him a question about, um, um, you know, he had resigned from the his position because of the Iraq war, but uh, he hadn't abandoned the party. And when I asked him, so he said, well, I was born into the Labour Party and I'm going to die in the Labour Party. And as that's exactly what he did. And I think that that was kind of the Political, that was kind of a political tribalism which we don't see so much anymore. So political partisanship is not necessarily a disqualifying attribute because sometimes you are a partisan for one party at a time because you see it performing better. I mean, if you're concerned about climate change, you know, if your choices are Republicans or or Democrats, so obviously you're going to choose one party. That doesn't mean that you're somehow... Um, that a partisan, it just means that you have a better sense of, uh, you know, who can deliver on those promises. And but it uh, is, don't you think that exact line would be used by the Fox News folks? Yeah, but that's what I'm saying, that it's a kind of a, it depends on what the values at question are. I mean, if the, you know, with the, the values that we are speaking about, that if, um, um, you know, xenophobia is your thing, sure, yeah, you can be, you can say that, the, um, you know, we're, the GOP is a better representation of uh, who you are, or if you think that climate change is somehow a hoax, so yes, you know, you'll find better representation in the GOP. But the, what I'm saying is that um, uh, it's not exactly a totally emotional thing. I mean, political tribalism is emotional and it's kind of resistant to facts, whereas choosing a party is not necessarily uh, a kind of a it doesn't necessarily show that you're you're um you know that you're merely being a partisan rather than making a, an informed political judgment yeah i agree with Alex, that yeah um yeah i i think tribalism is a huge problem um and it's really this murky gray area as well because you can look at a us president from decades past say uh, richard nixon and he started the Environmental Protection Agency, right? Something, right. if you know, if if that happened today in today's um, atmos political atmosphere, he'd be labeled, you know, part of the radical left, doing exactly what he did. Um, he mm -hmm. opened diplomacy with China. Um, you know. He, uh, now, uh, yeah, unfortunately, there, you know, there was there was Watergate. He basically was, was you know, and he, uh, you know, just yeah, derailed, left. yeah, derailed peace in in Vietnam. I mean, we can point to plenty of bad things about it, but the, the point is that yeah, sometimes there is the you know this murky area. People from your the party you don't associate with 
So sometimes there are positive things to, to say about them. And then mm -hmm. sometimes there's negative things to say about people in your own party. But I think it's gotten very hard for people to thread that needle. And just a, like another recent example on, on one of the Sunday shows, I think it was Chris Wallace. I forget which senator he had on, but there was a, a Republican senator asked about um, Joe Biden's decision to uh, recall U.S. troops from Afghanistan by the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Right. And, you know, do you support that? And he couldn't just say, you know, yes, I support I support the president. I'm, I'm with the president. He has my support. He basically said, I want to thank President Trump who wanted to do this. Right, right, so, right. Thank you, President Trump, for setting, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So you, well, that's you, the tribalism aspect of it that, that Idris is getting at. Yes, yeah. So we're, we're definitely in this um, atmosphere where you can't say anything nice about the opposing party or or negative about your 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 own party now this this is definitely more the case in the GOP because I have heard Joe Biden say yes I think President Trump was right about and he may have just been being polite but I think it was some something to do with the um you know the vaccine uh fast tracking right. or he he could at least say that yes President Trump did something that I support but you'll never hear that from Trump or Trump or like basically I, I, every, yeah, everything I, I, Biden does is bad. Everything any Democrat does is bad. If it's not bad, it's because tr Trump it's thought. Because, it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll yeah, come I'll back. To, if I just wanted to. Mm, uh, yes, it is. That, that um, um, in the UK, for example, if you take something like human rights issues um, now, it's one thing that, um, you know, we saw the. Labour Party over the past few years, it had a rather selective attitude towards um, human rights. And it's the same thing with the Conservative Party. But what happens is that what happens in specific cases becomes important. Like, let's look at something like the the case of the Uyghurs right now. Mm -hmm. um, now, what's happening is that um, you have actually more activism wins inside the Conservative Party from more prominent people. Uh, to her credit, Emily Thornberry, who wasn't great on other things, but she has been very good on the Uyghur issue. And um, she's I, a labor minister, though. Yeah. And um, so the thing is, yeah, so she's a labor minister. Well, what I'm saying is that uh, she's the only prominent person that I've seen that who's uh, right. active right. on this. And uh, even though she hadn't, she, she had been far from great on Syria. In fact, uh, she her positions were reflected the parties at the time. And um, but the among conservatives, there has been a real push. And same thing in the U.S. You have in the GOP, you know, some really active voices, um, including, you know, figures like Marco Rubio, that uh, mm -hmm. on certain issues of, like, let's say human rights, again, in, in China, they have been human rights in Xinjiang. They have been, they have been good. Hong Kong, they have been good. And sometimes that creates a problems even for activists abroad. That when they come looking for allies, you know, very often they don't find it in the quote unquote left wing parties. Yeah, I mean, they find it in, yeah. yeah if, you, if you were a Syrian, I mean, you had no ally in the Labour Party, you know, over the past few years.
the, right. the past five years. But you could find an Andrew Mitchell or you know other people who are willing to listen to you in the, On the other side of the political aisle. So it was. Yeah. So hmm. I think that what happens is that um, it's this is one of the reasons why I think it's probably a good thing that people are outgrowing the political tribalism of the past that um, um, if these decisions are made more situationally obviously when it comes to election time you decide on ba on the basis of uh, a host of issues and the balance of those issues that who represents me better and who's more amenable to being uh, influenced because right. You know, on certain issues, you know that the Labour Party can be influenced. Same thing with Democrats. And so even though I will see, I will concede that, well, you know, Marco Rubio has been more decent on things like human rights in Hong Kong or Xinjiang. But the thing is that I know at the same time that the Democratic Party overall is gen uh, generally on all the issues that are of importance to me and which I think also are public interest issues, that they have a better record and they are more amenable to change. And I think at least for the Biden administration, they've got a really good national security team as well. The, okay. The well, let's, we'll come back to specific politics a little bit later. I, I want to keep going with what we started with, which was about the obligation of the artist to speak out. Mm -hmm. And that, that seems to me, to be something that you might consider a personal obligation. As a citizen, it's an obligation to speak out at a moment of political crisis. But I want to talk a little bit about the obligation of the audience to listen. And this is where I want to bring Idris in first. Because Idris, when you and I talked about this, you said, talking about Alex, you said, look, he has made no pact with his audience to follow him on Twitter for his music alone. Do you think the audience has an obligation to listen to all of Alex's views? No. You know, it's one thing that when somebody's buying Alex's CDs, so they're listening to his music, you know. But the thing is that when they're following him on Twitter, that's his space. So there he gets to decide, you know, what he says or doesn't say. And as an audience, sure, you can engage. And But the thing is that you can't tell him to shut up and play his guitar because the thing is that that's his space. And he is more than just, you know, his guitar playing and, uh, you know, which is phenomenal. But the thing is that he's he is more than just his artistry. He is also, uh, you know, a, a, a citizen, human being and all that. So the thing is that um, uh, when you're coming into his space, you have to respect the fact that he has an opinion and he has he's free to express it. Mm -hmm. Alex, how do you feel about that, about the idea that the audience has an obligation to listen to all of your views? Yeah, I well, I I agree with it to the I agree with the point that um, when you follow me on Twitter, that's you know why why can't I do what everybody else is doing on Twitter, which is mm. expressing views in uh, you know in in a, in a limited amount of characters. Um, that's not the same as buying my my albums or buying testaments albums of which i'm a part i'm just one part and so do you think yeah sorry yeah. i was going to say do you think it would be different then if you were expressing these political views in your music as opposed to on twitter yeah i i do i mean okay. if if suddenly if i lobbied testament to include my rap song on for example, the next testament, yeah, bonus there track. Were, there I were was, two. Was, 
in case the audience is not familiar, there were actually two anti-Trump rap songs. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if I lobbied Testament, to, we're going to do a bonus track. We're going to include it on the CD. Uh, you guys are going to track the, the parts. So we'll add those guys and we're going to convert those into Testament songs. And I, well, I think then it would be a little more understandable. But the fact is, um, you know, I'm an independent musician as well as a band member of Testament. And I do a lot of music that has no connection to Testament whatsoever. <laughs> and my instrumental music has no connection to Testament. It's not on the, you know, it's not distributed the same way. It's not with the same musicians. It's not with the same record label. Um, my, yeah, my little raps that I, that I do on my YouTube channel, not Testament's right, YouTube channel. Right. Testament's not sharing this. This is me. Mm -hmm. So part of it is just an acceptance that maybe a member of a band that you like has this whole other side and a whole other part of his career, but you don't have to follow that. Right. You can still buy those Testament albums. You can hear those guitar solos. Those, those guitar solos are not going to subliminally tell you to not watch Fox News and that Sean Hannity is disingenuous. <laughs> but even if, even if, for example, in your non-Testament music, even if you did say those things explicitly in, in verse you think that would still be okay because you, again, that is your own private space. It's separate to Testament. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think that is part of it. I'm, yeah, Testament is is a it's a collaborative group that I didn't even start. I joined as it was an existing band. Um, mm -hmm. If it was more like Nine Inch Nails or Foo Fighters, where you have like a a Trent Reznor or a Dave Grohl, where that person is the band and that person is you know that would be different. And if, if, if that was my role and then I sort of put all this stuff into the music, I, you know, not that I would listen to them, um, to their complaints, but I would understand them. I would at least, you know, I don't know if it would get me to, and this is totally hypothetical. I don't know if it would get me to not do, do so, but you, then you, you can understand it. I'm taking, they've gotten used to a certain template for these albums and for the, the music, for the Testament music, and for that right. suddenly to be filled with all these messages. And, you know, okay, then it would be a little understandable. But the fact it's is, I'm on Twitter, and what I do on Twitter has nothing to do with it. Sorry. It's interesting because we're we're now sort of getting into the deeper layers of it. It's, it's not merely that there are um, that there's this obligation to speak out. It's that there are different ways to do it, different forums to do it in. But I want to yeah. sort of keep uh, going I, with it. Can I just... Uh, Idris, let me just mm -hmm. pose the question and then I, I'll, I'll bring you right. in because I want to keep going with it a bit because I think it's quite interesting for the audience to sort of ask some of these or to ponder some of these questions about artists. And one way of looking at it, it seems to me, and again, with all due respect to the artists among us, it seems that there's a certain arrogance in assuming that simply because an audience likes part of your output, for example, your music or your movies or your plays, that they should then be exposed to the parts they don't like. And it seems to me that, that what that really is about is about this compact that you might call it or relationship between the artist and the audience. Idris, do you want to come in and answer yeah. that? 
Yeah, because uh, that's yeah exactly what I was going to get at. Because I think that there's a compact exists when somebody buys the ticket to watch your film or they buy your CD and listen to you. You know, so there, the thing is that you are delivering something that they are needing. You know, the supply is matching their demand. And uh, but the fact is that on Twitter or when you're speaking about other things, there's no such compact. I mean, just because somebody is an artist and has made a film that you like doesn't mean that they have an obligation to always be likable to you. And I think that um, um, uh, there was actually a funny incident a few years back that um, uh, Paul Ryan, the former Speaker of the House, had posted a picture of himself in a gym, and uh, he was he was saying that how he was listening to Rage Against the Machine, yeah. and um, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and Rage Against the Machine had uh, rep replied by saying that well you are the machine we are raging against. You yeah, know, so, Tom Morello um, did an open yeah. letter to Paul Ryan. That was great. Yeah, so I think that, uh, so the fact is that, um, um, but in that case, you know, Paul Ryan has every right to use the music as he sees fit because he has paid for it. You know, it's another thing, whether he, what he does with the message, that's his his right too. So whether he, he accepts the message or ignores it, that's part of like, uh, that's his decision. The compact only included that the Rage Against the Machine is producing this music and it's out there and Paul Ryan can buy it and he can use it in the gym if he wants. But it's a thing that Paul Ryan starts demanding in return that, listen, I've got your CDs and now you better either shut up or don't speak about the issues that, uh, you know, that are of concern to me. So I think that it's going to be a very, you know, uh, just by virtue of being an audience of Raging mm -hmm. the Machine, he has no right to tell them what they can or cannot speak about. Exactly right. Yeah, Alex, let me bring you in because that's hugely interesting. And I think I'll, I'll ask you in a moment about the relationship between the artist and the audience. But let's keep going with that Ryan, uh, that, um, uh, that Ryan example, because as a musician, Alex, of course, your work, once you put your work out there into the world, it exists independently of you. And so this must happen a lot. You must sort of see people, you know, publicly saying that they like your music. And perhaps you feel uncomfortable with that in some way because you don't like their politics. Is that something that occurs a lot? Um, yes, but it's it's happened much more in uh, the past decade, or you know, okay. especially the past uh, political cycle. Um, yeah, I don't Why remember. Do you think that is, yeah. Well, I think um, yeah, America's sort of been through this shock, you know, of pre President Obama being elected. I think to many to many of us folks like me, we thought, oh, you know, he he seems like he's a, a smart guy, and he happens to be the first African American president. But he's smart, yeah. he's pretty center, pretty harm, like a little, almost like too middle of the road for a lot of us policy wise. Um, right. But you know what? Hey, how how nice that we got this nice couple in the White House. You know, she's. Like, but just by any standard, uh, he, he's not, never had a scandal. You you can't attack him, and yet it it caused people to lose their minds. <laughs> and um, I just yeah remember just seeing being shocked by some of the Facebook posts I would see about Obama and about the Obamas and how they you know they were suddenly portrayed as like the enemy and obviously it wasn't just um 
you know, it wasn't just in music circles. Obviously, this yeah, <laughs> the whole a, country a society reacted. thing. Yeah, it was a societal thing. Yeah, and the backlash was, you know, the most uh, scandalous person imaginable. Uh, Donald Trump <laughs> is thrown in as, a, but he he's perfect because you know because he, I guess you know you, you can't ignore the the racial aspect of it. Um, so Did just you all. Trace- yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so you trace some of the changes in American politics and actually the way that culture has been used in American politics. You change it to the, you trace it to the election of uh, Barack Obama. Well, I think there's this been this pendulum swing. I would even argue it happened before that. Um, I think with each um, political era, especially, you know, the, the sort of dynasties, if you will, right, in a way... Uh, the Clintons were a dynasty right. because Bill Clinton was a two-term president. Um, Hillary became senator of New York, then secretary of state, then presidential candidate. Um, just, yeah, so from basically from the Clinton era, the rumor, the conspiracies about uh, their friend, Vince Foster, who had committed suicide because of depression. Well, now, I mean, how many people commit suicide because of depression? Now it's kind of a common thing. But back then, that was just as uh, Rush Limbaugh was getting popular and all kinds of imitators. So suddenly, you know, talk radio is filled with these you know, right-wing conspiracy theories about the Clinton. So then, uh, you know, we have another political dynasty, the Bushes. Yeah. And, right, George, <clears throat> and then Bush comes in. And uh, the Iraq war, certainly the, you know, the division around that and around, you know, 9-11 and suddenly this kind of extreme patriotism. And in a way, Obama's election was a reaction to that. But it was so we just had this pendulum swinging back and forth. And it just seems to get more and more things get more and more extreme each time as mm. far as the rhetoric and, and also technologies change. So by the time Obama comes, social media, you know, and Facebook is, is this new emerging uh, platform. And, you know, now, I mean, you know, yeah, Joe, Joe Biden is sort of like this safe, mild choice, although he's, you know, he's doing some, He's definitely being bolder than anybody expected. But I think with each of these um, presidential eras, uh, things have gotten more heated and more divisive. It does feel like like there are these actions and reactions, and it's not merely a political thing. It's something that is spread across the entirety of the society, as we talked about, into culture as well. Um, yeah, and I don't think I ever got any political backlash, even though some of the early lyrics I wrote were certainly political. I mean, there was a song I wrote called Perilous Nation, which was inspired by the, um, you know, the Salman Rushdie affair with Iran. But nobody had a problem with that. Um, There were all kinds of songs you you could interpret as being critical of politicians, especially Republican politicians. But but it just, I guess maybe it wasn't as, as obvious. 
Well, that's uh, but, quite interesting. I mean, if you were talking about the Rushdie affair, that means you were involved in very specific political issues. Do, do you oh, think absolutely. Maybe- I mean, on on the same album, there's an uh, a song called "The Greenhouse Effect," and now we, you know, it's basically about the same things we now refer to as climate change. Do you think that that might be because if we're living through a moment of political upheaval, there's a lot more scrutiny, even on people who are not political? like people who are artists or cultural figures? Well, I think that uh, that's true, but also everything has been politicized. So back in you know the early 90s, I could do a song called The Greenhouse Effect and talk about the depletion of the rainforest and the, you know, saving the environment. And nobody had a problem with it. The same people that consumed that song now have been um, conditioned to think of climate change and every all the debates surrounding it as these you know these hot button issues and these these talking points and something associated with Democrats or the left that has right. been demonized. So yeah, so that's that's the, that's, a, that's big a big change difference. actually. Yeah, I mean, exactly. you can imagine, you know, if you remember the 1990s, you can remember that people were advocating for these, what we now consider environmental issues, but without advocating for a particular political um, party. Yeah. I, I wonder if actually, just to follow this down the line, do you think that there is a difference in talking about politics generally and advocating for a very sort of specific policy outcome? I noticed, by the way, I mean, you mentioned this in your essay. I noticed that you've done both. I mean, you've advocated for general political positions, but then you also publicly backed the the American politician Beto O'Rourke when he was running for the Senate. Mm-hmm. So, do you think it's easier to speak in general political terms in saying we have to save the environment, we have to push back against authoritarianism? Is it easier for artists to do that rather than trying to back a particular politician? Who, after all, politics is a game of compromise. They'll probably let you down. That's true. That's true. Um, I don't think you can separate the two. In the case of Beto O'Rourke, he was running against Ted Cruz, who, to, you know, to my ears and eyes, is just a pure obstructionist, an opportunist. Like I, I can't think of anything he's done that is that is productive, and just incredibly you know disingenuous in the way that you have know, so many on his and his wing of the Republican Party are um, mm. fiercely critical of the you know other party and then you know if he does something you know as the same as you know then it then it's okay you know it's okay for him to take off on vacation as his state is has suffering this deep freeze from this right. electrical, you know, and um, he's attacked other politicians for so much less. And um, yeah, the, the fact is that's who Obeto will work with, was running against. So, okay. you know, in a situation like that, it's, it's not that, okay, Beto is the answer and every one of his ideas is the right answer. It's just, you, you there's no comparison he's you have to get somebody that at least is you know 
is better than, than that. Is competent at least. Yeah, yeah, is competent and seems uh, genuine in his beliefs. And, um, you know, it doesn't mean he can succeed in, in every idea he has, but you just, you know, just the way he operates as a, as a person and how he interacts with his constituents and going into areas of Texas that no politician had gone into before and just talking with everybody and the respect that he has and not bad mouthing anybody except as a response, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's just, so there's, there were, I think there, there's a lot behind that rather than just backing one individual over another. There is though, to some degree, a cost when you attach yourself to a particular politician. I mean, Idris, you, you know, you follow the, the vagaries of politics quite closely. I mean, if you if you see an artist hitch themselves to a particular politician, there is a chance somewhere down the line that you will disagree. You won't disagree maybe with the broad thrust of what they're saying if it's a left liberal position, but you might disagree that they've attached themselves to this particular politician. Mm, yeah, that's that, that does happen. And I think um, sometimes it's not even a politician so much as... Uh, you know, whose political opinions you listen to. I mean, you know, it's a kind of, it's a strange irony of history that uh, we, what's his name? Uh, Roger Waters could have very easily ended up as an ally. Instead, he ended up becoming um, this, I don't know, uh, with his weird politics of, uh, you know, Putin admiration and all that. Because what happened is that just before he threw his weight uh, behind the, the, the pro-Putin position, he was actually, he was keen to listen to some Syrian activists. And in fact, he had, uh, he was about to meet a Syrian doctor and then somehow the other side got to him first. And now he's fully committed to that position. And um, I think it happens very often that in, in politics, whenever you make choices, you can never, you should never expect in the first place that your choice is going to be infallible because you know that's first of all humanly it's impossible and secondly especially in the in the realm of politics where you have to balance so many different interests you know even within a single party like even if you're a democrat the interests of latinos for example in cuba are very different than the interests of latinos in in new york and so what happens is that you always have to find a balance there and uh, which means that somebody's always going to be disappointed. And I think that this notion that somehow you should pick a choice uh, which is going to be infallible, and if they don't live up to that choice, that somehow then you should reject. Uh, it happens to a lot of people that they get jaded with politics because look at I used to trust this person and he didn't live up to my expectations. Right. You know, but yeah. but the thing you always have to have look at the balance of their record. And just going back to the earlier conversation, I was just going to mention that, uh, you know, I think the critical difference between what happens in the 90s and now is, is social media. That in the 90s, if Alex writes a song about climate change or about a controversial issue, so what happens is that um, anybody who's upset by it, well, they'll have to either, you know, find his address first and then have to write an actual, you know, a letter and enclose it in an envelope and, you know, find the students and all and dispatch it and with the expectation yeah. 
that it may or may not reach him and that would all that would already discourage a lot of people from doing it whereas now everybody thinks because they are you know the social media has even the playing field which has its positives but one of the other things that it has done is that's you know just the level of uh, um of literally any person who can set up a social media account thinks that somehow they can come and you know mm. criticize you for it. there's actually this thing and which i quite like is that social media is the place twitter is the place where people who don't read books come to challenge those who write them so <laughs> <laughs> oh that's very good but alex let me bring you in here because actually that social media point from me is very intriguing because actually i think as much as of course social media presents a problem for people like you who are speaking out. Actually, you wouldn't perhaps have had the opportunity to speak out if it were not for social media. Because as you were saying That's before, true. you would not be talking about politics on Testament's albums. That's true. That's very true. Um, yeah, I mean, there were definite limitations before. Um, you know, the way to get a message out was to write lyrics about it. Or maybe you talk about it in an interview. I did um, a few interviews back then when it, it would it would come up and you right. talk about it. Um, but you certainly, uh, you weren't amplified like you are now. You didn't have this, um, you know, this platform where this, you know, valve that just reaches all the fans that sign up to follow you. Right. Um, so that, that's a, that's a big difference. And, um, Getting back to the um, the part about backing individual politicians, I just had one thought on, on that. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's always a gamble, you know. Um, mm. But I think there's a big difference between those who who can admit that okay, maybe they backed the wrong horse, and uh, uh, and those who just cannot criticize. The positive, yeah. You know, the fact that this guy Matt Gates, for example, for example, yeah, it's just the right scandal after scandal. It's exploding around him, right? He's just imploding, and they're not saying a word. His allies, who have been on his side, just won't say a word about it. Mm. Um, now, look, you know, somebody I thought was a very effective politician was the Anthony Weiner. Right. He was very good. His health care debates on the floor. Amazing. But I'm not going to say that, you know, oh, you know, I'm not going to ignore what happened. Obviously, you know, well, that, that I mean, I'm I'm glad you gave that example, actually, because it's a very good example. It shows that you can back somebody because of their broad political views, which you think are aligned with yours. But in the case of, I mean, Anthony Weiner, it, I mean, it turned out to be, you know, a catastrophe on the Mike Gates level. <laughs> Disaster. Disaster. Uh, that gates. Yeah. Um, and you can, yeah. And it's okay to say that. Like, okay, I am extremely disappointed in this person. Mm. One, um, so one, yeah, one, a recent example that, and I, you know, I'm, I have no problem admitting this, but I was a, a big, you know, one of these new Andrew Cuomo fans. I, during mm. the, the pandemic in, in New York, New York became a ghost town exactly a year ago and i was glued to those briefings those briefings were art <laughs> you know yeah. it, it was so effective and it was just tremendous 
leadership. And then w- when these questions came up about how he handled nursing home placements, I thought, okay, this this is a smear tactic. You know, it's got to be because which does happen often. You know, there's these they they don't want to give him any credit, so the okay, but then it gets it's getting worse and worse, and then now there's sexual impropriety allegations. There's um, you know, there's just yeah, ruthless, yeah, and then there's like ruthless um, conversation with uh, with a, with a congressman uh, from Queens. Which you know, it, it could have been a, a Scorsese film. <laughs> like I mean, at that point, when when somebody that you, you know, perhaps somebody that you like, maybe someone that you've uh, said that you like in public, at that point, do you seek forgiveness from your audience and say, "Look, I I liked Wiener for his politics, I like Cuomo for his political art, but obviously, I don't back everything else." Yeah, I'm I'm fine saying that. Okay, you know what? I like this person for this reason and this reason, but. You know, right now I, I am extremely let down and disappointed. I mean, it, it, it in New York, it seems to happen often. You know, I, I thought uh, the mayor, Bill de Blasio, was getting a really bad rap. Uh, he was just targeted. Like, he could not catch a break his first few years. And I thought he was really, like, trying to do the right things. And then last summer, you know, this this his handling of the COVID situation and you know, he insisted on kept going to his gym, but telling everybody else to, you know, shelter in place. Um, and then, the, you know, these videos of police just attacking protesters with bicycles, driving cars through post like and him just sort of excusing it. Well, it's a hard, you know, I, I was yeah, it's quite shocking when so, you see it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. where. I only really have a, a few more questions because they're coming really to the end. Um, I, I want to just, I want to keep going a little bit with what we started with because Idris, sure. when we talked before, Idris had quite an interesting distinction that he drew um, between uh, these. We were talking about whether artists should be listened to just because, simply because they have an audience. And I know this is something Idris is very intrigued by. When we spoke, Idris, you said that some artists treat their audiences as a responsibility and some treat them as a privilege. I wonder if you want to unpack that distinction and then I perhaps I'll ask Alex what he feels about the audience. Well, I think uh, um, yeah, that's an interesting thing. I, I've completely forgotten what we were discussing at the time, but um, um, I well, think... We were, we, yeah, well, we were talking a little bit about sort of the, the role of the artist in society and about an artist perhaps being an artist or being an entertainer and the yeah. amount of yeah do you recall yeah so uh, i think what, what i was the point i was trying to make was that uh, um you know when you have an audience you know that there are people who will listen to you because they have liked whatever you have done maybe you're a great film actor maybe you're a great guitarist and they they are listening to you and so some people treat it as a responsibility. And I think that that's why I like the fact that uh, somebody like Taylor Swift, that she was not the kind of person who was politically active or anything, but when she did um, appeal to her own base, so she did it in a very politically responsible way. And you know the, that showed also respect for her audience. And whereas there are other people who just think that they've got an audience 
and um, they can just treat it as a privilege. I mean, they can, I, mean, I think Kanye West would be an example of that, that the privilege is that, well, okay, you have uh, liked my music, now come and support my totally frivolous ambitions, you know, as a, as a politician. So I think that, um, um, so I, I feel that there is kind of a, when an artist, it's one thing, that when they are you know expressing political opinions it's another thing when you are actually kind of uh, um using that to leverage some kind of action and that's mm-hmm. where that distinction becomes important mm-hmm. that no longer just my freedom to say what i want to say it's also about what i'm asking you to do and right. so i think in that place that distinction becomes important that whether somebody's treating you as you know with respect or meaning that if you know i'm treating you with respect if i'm saying that well do this thing because here are all the reasons why you should do this thing that here are reasons like i'm going to persuade you with these reasons rather than saying that well do this thing because you know i am me listen to me you know so i think that that, you know the distinction there alex do you recognize that distinction between treating an art the audience as a responsibility or as a privilege and do you have a view on how you think of your audiences well, yeah, I have a few thoughts about it. Hmm. Uh, for one thing, you know, it's just to use the, the Beatles as the ultimate example. You know, they're the ultimate band and, you know, they're just such, such a, they set the template in so many ways. But they're early Beatles and there's later Beatles. And they're almost like two different bands, right? Mm-hmm. Early Beatles is please, please me. I want to hold your hand. Uh, she loves you. You know, the, the later Beatles, you know, it's, you know these these very... Serious happiness is a warm gun. For example, I did a post post on that, which was a um, headline in uh, American Rifleman magazine, and they were just shocked at the yeah. fascination of guns in the U.S. So the earlier Beatles would not have done a, a song like that, um, but they evolved into that band. But that and, sorry to interrupt you, Alex. But yeah. that point you were making about the Beatles and talking about guns. That is similar to the point you were talking about making music about um, environment, the environment in the 1990s. Today, if a band talked about gun control in that way, it would absolutely be seen as a party political position. Yes, and it, which brings us back to the Beatles, because I almost feel like there are, there are many fans out there today that they want you to be the early Beatles. Mm-hmm. They want you to do she loves you yeah 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 please please me i want to hold your hand uh they don't want the happiness is a warm gun side of things and um it's interesting that it's very interesting that taylor swift and kanye west uh emerged as these these figures you know because they there was that grammy controversy where he wouldn't let her finish the speech. Right, yeah. And she never, he was very out, outspoken during Hurricane Katrina. He said, George Bush doesn't support black people. Uh, yeah. So there was always this expectation that he would be this progressive, more activist artist. And here it is years later, she's come out and she's the progressive one. He's we are wearing his MAGA hat and, you know, express 
expressing views supporting Trumpism, not making it clear why, really digging his, um, you know, himself a, a hole doing so with just gaffes and statements that sound like slavery is a choice, for example. Yeah. So yeah. it's been it's been really fascinating watching I mean, intriguingly, that. Intriguingly, to use your distinction about the early and the late Beatles, a lot of people would have preferred the early Kanye. I mean, the... Yes. The trajectory yeah. from George Bush doesn't care about black people to, you know, the Oval Office with the MAGA hat yes. is quite an interesting it's one. It's incredible, right? It is, yeah. And, and just to, to get to just one final point on mm. the earlier question about social media amplifying everything. I mean, yes, that's exactly right. Is that, um, yes, we I could do a song about climate change in the early 90s. And it's just it just comes out, and that's it. And yeah, if you have a problem with it, you have to find uh, the uh, fan club address and write a letter and go through this trouble. And I'm also not going to make headlines because now we have all these online platforms where you know Skolnick supports uh, climate change regulation. Suddenly, <laughs> it's it's connected. It's connected to these. Um, you know, these websites that didn't exist back right. then, clickbait, which didn't exist back then, uh, and an audience that is uh, consuming, you know, right-wing news, uh, Breitbart and Fox News constantly. So it all ties in together. And I, I um, wonder if... Yeah. Can, I ask, can I ask Alex one question? Because um, I think it's a, uh, it's kind of a dark pivot, but um, um, you... You mentioned, for example, the you know Beatles songs about uh, the prevalence of guns in the U.S. Um, we do know that now there's a one is the gun crisis. Then we also know that there is a kind of mental health crisis, and um, then combine that with you know you are outspoken about politics. Once the pandemic finishes and once touring resumes, I mean, do you have any concerns? I mean, we we know what happened with you know somebody like uh, Dimebag Darrell that he um, he gets shot by some de deranged person at a at a gig. That in the future, um, I mean, is there anything that you would like to see change? That's very scary. Um, you know, concerts used to feel sacred; like nothing happened at, at concerts. Um, that was, you know. Yeah, that sent shockwaves through the entire music community, as did the, um, you know, the Bataclan in, the in Paris. Yeah. It was a very different different situation. Uh, these weren't fans. These weren't angry fans of the band. They didn't know anything about the band, but still, they, you know, uh, armed people taking over. Show. Yeah, it's, it's scary. <laughs> it is scary. Uh, there are security concerns. I've had conversations with uh, fellow musicians that are concerned and um, you know, we're, we're all uh, concerned about more concerned about security than, we, than we've ever been. And um, yeah, the fact that, you know, there are militias out there uh, just, you know, just like, a, you know, a militia attacked the Eagles of death metal concert uh, except now, you know, in America, we have different, different types of militias. Uh, yeah, no, the militia. A, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say uh, that's such an interesting question, Idris. So thank you for asking it because I, I do think it's it's part of what we were talking about of this change of social media that not merely do people now know your views, but mm. the situation is so polarized yeah. 
that people are often willing to take their views offline into the real world. Yeah. And for someone yeah. like you who's so out there, and as we were saying out earlier, so out there on specific political positions, is that not something that, that you do think about sometimes and maybe think maybe I better pull back a little bit? It's really scary. Um, and, I, you know, I've that's one thing I've never done is make threats against anybody or attack anybody personally. But, yeah, sometimes the, the responses can, can be scary. It's definitely in the minority. But they, you know, they do exist. And, you know, mm -hmm. you've had people like uh, this, uh, this kid, Kyle Rittenhouse, who you know, went to a, a social justice protest and shot protesters. And he's being celebrated. You know, there's, his legal defense fund has, been, uh, has raised a lot of money. And he just kind of randomly shot people at a, uh, you know, at a, at a protest right. and it's considered okay. So, you know, it's somebody, these are people he, he disagreed with. It's not like they, he caught these people in an act of violence or anything. They, it was just people on, on the street. So well, that, yeah. What's yeah. to stop somebody from saying, Oh, you know, they, you know, this guy is from, from the left. He's, evil you know we it needs to be taken out it's 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 awful but has it not made you pause in in putting out your political opinions uh no because um you know it does it i i feel like then there's no point if i'm just silent i might abstain from being too provocative yeah, I what I try to do is I, I try to uh, write out my my tweets and then I pause. <laughs> I look at you know once you know if I, I write a uh, a tweet in a, a fit of um, you know kind of activist uh, rage, I will wait before I wait till I've had the chance to catch my breath and calm down before sending it. And I I have modified some things I've said. Just say, just because okay, this could be interpreted as really provocative, and I don't want it to be that. I want to make so, but I it's never like stopped me from making my point. But I have tried to find uh, more constructive ways of making my point, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Well, let me ask you the last question, and because I think this leads sort of nicely into it, I felt going back to your essay. I felt at times reading the essay that you were perhaps disappointed that you needed to weigh into the political fray. So you write, at some point, politics becomes inescapable, even existential. The melting of polar ice caps, the open carrying of paramilitary assault weapons on US streets, and even mask wearing during a pandemic. How did all of this become politicized? Right. So I wanted to ask you, would you like to just shut up and play your guitar? But do you feel that in some ways... But do you feel that in some ways the problems of the world are sort of encroaching on your artistic space? Uh, yeah, I think that's that's true. That's true. Um, I didn't get into this with the goal of being outspoken and talking about issues. Hmm. I imagine if I lived in a place that was 
that at least seemed more balanced, say New Zealand, for example. Right. Um, not that they haven't had their, their problems, but they, you know, they had a big mass shooting. They took drastic action. It's they have not had that problem since. Right. Um, right. There, there are right. not not that everybody agrees on everything, but the disagreements don't seem to devolve to the level of vitriol and borderline hatred that happens here in the United States. So if I was there and it, or if, if the United States yeah, was more reflective of what's happening in New Zealand now, I don't think I would be speaking out as much about these issues. I would be mm-hmm. shutting up and playing my guitar. <laughs> Interesting. Well, Alex and Idris, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. It's, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you. If you're interested in hearing more from Alex, I hope you'll listen to his podcast, Moods and Modes, which you can find on Apple Podcasts or via his website, alexskolnick.net. If you are interested, I particularly draw your attention to the episode he posted last month, paying tribute to the life of Chick Corea, the jazz musician who passed away a few weeks ago. You'll find the essay that Alex wrote for us on our website, newlinesmag.com. It's called Shut Up and Play Your Guitar. And I hope we can continue this conversation on Twitter. You'll find us there at newlinesmag. You'll find Alex at Alex Skolnick. You'll find me at Faisal Yafai and Idris at IM underscore Pulse. Thank you all for joining us today and good night.